0: Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Hello, and welcome to Naked Reflections. One of the occupational hazards of presenting a weekly podcast is that you're tempted to think of silence as a threat. Perhaps silence means the dialogue has run out of steam, or you've lost your focus. Not that would happen on my show. But of course, silence is much more than the absence of noise or speech. It can be contemplative, defiant, or truthful. And it's our subject this week. In 1952, the American composer John Cage staged the first performance of his work, 4 minutes 33 seconds. It was a three-movement piece in which the musician, or musicians, were instructed to take their place on stage and not to play, to remain silent. It was partly a joke at the expense of over-serious composers of the time, and partly a clever way to demonstrate that there's no such thing as absolute silence. But the idea of silence is deeply embedded in more mainstream culture and religion. Silent prayer, the yearly Remembrance Day observation, A one-minute silence to mark a death or a tragedy. All have great power. And on a more visceral level, what about the blockbuster movie? There's a very simple way to build tension. I have to say, actually, one of the biggest horror gestures is the use of silence, of actually having no music at all, because then you've got no information. For The composer can exploit it by, you know, you have the music and then the music will suddenly stop for a very brief moment and then, wham, it kind of hits you with the scary stinger uh, that makes you jump out of your skin. That was Janet Halfyard speaking on the Naked Scientist show Your Brain on Horror. With me to discuss silence, I'm delighted to welcome the writer and broadcaster Tom Shakespeare, Professor of Disability Research at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, and Ajahn Amaro, abbot of Amravati Buddhist Monastery in Hertfordshire. His book, The Long Road North, tells the story of his 830-mile walk from Sussex to Northumberland. Arjun, I suppose that wasn't in silence, was it?
1: Uh, not at all. There were moments of silence as we were walking along, but again, like John Cage, the universe has its own ripples, so that the sound of our feet meeting the ground, the sound of the wind in the leaves, uh, the sound of our own thoughts passing through our minds also, it's, uh, ever-present a companion to the movement through the countryside. You mentioned
0: ripples of the universe. The Franciscans believe that the only language appropriate to address God is silence. Would you agree?
1: To begin with, uh, in the Buddhist uh, way of framing things and understanding things, it's a non-theistic religion, so we don't talk about God. That ultimate reality is not personalised or, or externalised, really. So we use the word Dhamma or dharma to indicate that fundamental reality. And so we would talk about, say, using meditation to realize the Dhamma or to awaken to the Dhamma. So in a way, it's in accord with some of the non-representative, non-personalizing traditions you have in Judaism and Islam, where God is not uh, represented in form or sometimes even in a word. So it's that principle of Dharma or Dhamma is what we would uh, use meditation for. And then that quality of silence is a means, say external silence, sitting in a a reasonably quiet place to, uh, say, support that quality of the process of realization. And then meditation itself starts off with a concentration of the mind and stilling the distracted thought. So there's an inner quietness that helps that process of realization and clarification to uh, proceed, to take shape. And so that that external silence and inner silence of thought is a, a means to support that quality of awakening.
0: Inner silence, Tom, that's something that you must be able to relate to.
2: I think we'd probably call it light, the light within, because in Quakerism there's an idea that everybody has that of God in them. And I'll quote you George Fox. He famously went to an ordinary Christian service and he stood up at the end and he said, You will say, Christ saith this, And the apostles say this, but what canst thou say? Art thou a child of light, and hast thou walked in the light? And what thou speakest, is it inwardly from God? And it's that notion of inwardly from God. So we use that word often, not always. And it's the idea that if you still your mind, if you sit in contemplation, if you try to let any passing thoughts just leave you, You're not trying to empty yourself except for this. You're trying to be receptive to what God says. So that inwardly from God, that idea that if you get rid of everything else, you will hear what God is saying to you. Maybe not anything that day, maybe nothing that week, that year. But every now and then you will have a thought. And it's not the sort of, oh, yeah, I've got to do the shopping or those sorts of thoughts. It's a different quality of thought. And maybe the abbot is talking not totally uh, differently to what I am, because he's talking about understanding or enlightenment or awareness. And in a way, we are too.
0: Emptying yourself sounds very Buddhist, Abbott, and yet it's also very Christian, isn't it? Christ emptying himself, as it were. Is there a connection there, or am I not seeing the wood from the trees?
1: I would say so. I think in the Christian tradition, it's called kenosis, Is that self-emptying, if I'm correct. And so it's very similar to the, the, the Buddhist practice. And what you would say, listening to the to the, the voice of God or the word of God or being suffused with that inner light, we use similar language, like we use the word insight, insight meditation. And so rather than thinking of that or framing that in terms of an external being or another being speaking to us, formed into an idea of God, it's related to or spoken of in terms of the wisdom of your own heart, the, the fundamental nature of your own being is what is taking shape. But also that insight doesn't have to take form of words. It's not necessarily a a verbal or a conceptual quality. It can also be a change of attitude, a change of vision. I'm trying to remember in
2: one of the same sayings that the teacher claps their hands and in that moment the pupil attains enlightenment. Yeah, It can be, as you say, not words at all and sometimes words just get in the way.
1: You mentioned John Cage at the beginning Because the the Zen koan is, what is the sound of one hand? The koan, that that sort of uh, awakening question, or question designed to support awakening, is, if there's only one hand, there's no sound of of clapping. And so the original koan is, what is the sound of one hand? And that's very similar to John Cage's 4 Minutes 33, because uh, as a little aside, I heard that he was inspired to create that piece when he went into an anechoic chamber at MIT. And then he could hear the sort of the inner sound of his mind, the kind of vibration or, or resonant of the inner sound within his mind. Of, oh, even in a totally silent room, there's still this inner vibration going on. And four minutes, 33 seconds is 273 seconds. So he chose that number because it represents minus 273. The absolute zero on the scale of Celsius. That's how I heard, anyway. So that the sound of one hand is like an awakened attention to silence, or that non-manifest quality. So there's that uh, the mind is awake, is aware, but that reality of the present is not being formed into anything.
0: Why do we find silence so threatening? I mean, you two are talking very happily and take pleasure, if I can say that, in the silence on your journeys. But I know having attended many services and synagogues and churches and mosques, as well as other places of worship, silence is not an easy thing for a community to take part in.
2: We're not good at it. And I think in the Christian tradition, you tend to fill it with prayers, with readings, with ritual. And I always find it funny in other Christian settings where they say there'll be a moment of silence. And for a Quaker, and probably for a Buddhist, that would probably last a long time or could. For a mainstream Christian, it lasts less than a minute, probably 30 seconds. And that moment, it's literally only a millisecond of moment. And you think, well, why can't we? There is a very human busyness, a feeling that if you're not doing anything, you can't be contributing to the good. But I think what we find is that when you are striving for emptiness, when you're striving for contemplation, and of course, not all Quakers believe in God. It's something like 40% don't believe in God. So for them, it's very much closer to, to what the abbot has described, that you're sitting waiting to listen to yourself, to the inner voice, that, the still small voice of calm that you could uh, describe in a Christian scripture. I think we're terrified of it.
1: I generally use the phrase, the terror of undefined being, that we're so identified with our personality, our daily activities, our profession, our story, that when that falls away, we don't know what we are. It's of lack of definition. It goes completely counter to our ego-centered habits. So it's, in a way, it's a fear of death, a fear of non-being. So we fill up the space with a plan, with a conversation, with talking about what was on the TV last night, uh, who you think is going to win Strictly Come Dancing, and so on and so forth. Because that fear of death, the kind of ego death, is something we want to get away from. But the kind of contemplative practice you have in the Quaker tradition or Buddhist tradition, there's a conscious opening to that quality of silence. You're, you're doing it in order to let go of your self-centered habits. That's the point of it. <laughs> So that quality of silence then is something that is is welcoming as an experience of wonderment rather than terror and awkwardness. When
0: one of us or one of the listeners has participated in a communal act of silence, it's incredibly powerful. So are you talking individual or are you talking communal?
2: Quakers will be less likely to do it on their own as it were for Quakers coming together and sitting for possibly an hour possibly a bit less is the heart of worship however you know some Quakers would pray and obviously many Christians would pray and prayer yeah, there are words but you don't always say them aloud and it might be internal or there may be no words it may be you know just a period of being with God it's not the only way that Christians do it. Christians also sing hymns and recite prayers and all the rest of it. But it's a significant part of it, I think.
0: This is Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests, Tom Shakespeare and Ajahn Amaro. And we're talking about, although not enacting, silence. From an audiologist's point of view, silence or an approximation of silence is something that has to be constructed. Trevor Cox gave a fascinating insight into this technique in the Naked Scientist show would you trust a robot? Active noise control, also known as anti-noise, is a process that gets rid of an unwanted sound by using a second sound that is specifically designed to cancel out the first. To get active noise control to silence the traffic, you would need to produce a sound that is the inverse of the highway noise. When these two add together, the rumble of the traffic is removed. Imagine the traffic noise is like a water wave at the seaside. The cancelling sound needs to have a trough, where the traffic noise has a peak, so that when you add the two together, the peaks and the troughs cancel each other out, leaving you with flat, still water. I'd like to move on to the point that there is no such thing as silence. I didn't know if you ever went to a John Cage performance.
1: Did you, uh, Abbott? I wasn't born in 1952, so I'm not old enough to have been in one of his performances, and I think he was mainly in America. I would have liked to have gone to one of the John Cage performances. You can expect something pretty strange, like living room music or a a duck whistle being blown underwater and such like. So that you're kind of ready for anything, I would imagine.
0: I suppose the reason I'm asking is that I suspect those who witnessed it, those who attended, found it incredibly awkward. And they would have recognised there's no such thing as absolute silence. Is this something that you've explored? And there's another book that you wrote called Finding the Missing Piece. Is there something in that where you're searching for some kind of absolute silence?
1: Not exactly. I think it's recognising that all silences are relative. Even though perfect silence in the auditory world, the physical hearing is not attainable, Because even if you're in an anechoic chamber like John Cage was, most people can hear an inner ringing tone that's a function of the body's nervous and energy system. Uh, So that's that inner silence or that inner listening. We actually use that inner sound as a meditation method. But the point is not just getting away from physical sound or even just getting away from the sound of your own thoughts. The missing piece, I would say, that uh, one is really fundamentally looking for is the silence within the the attitude, that spaciousness of heart, which is uh, all accommodating. Because with meditation, uh, there can be a way that even just listening to your own thoughts, like listening to the wind in the trees or the traffic outside on the street, you can be listening to thoughts that arise and pass away in your mind, and they're not burdensome or troublesome or limiting in any way. And so it's that quietness within the attitude, within the heart. I would say that's where peace is most profoundly and genuinely to be found, even in the midst of a lot of noise, like you can be on the London Underground on the M25 with a lot of physical noise around you, and you can be totally quiet inside. So it's that kind of peace that uh, I would say, going to a quiet place, learning to calm the mind and focus the mind, those are what we would call skillful means to develop that inner spaciousness, that inner silence of attitude that is all-encompassing and profoundly, let's say, easeful. I think in
2: Quakerism, we definitely have that. I can relate to that. And sometimes a silent meeting where nobody speaks is the best sort of meeting. But the idea is that we're waiting on God or something more profound, the inner voice or whatever, not just chat. And so in Quaker meeting, there would be possibly ministry. Uh, And this is very different from the Buddhist tradition because I might be sitting there in complete silence. I might have hopefully uh, got rid of all the shopping lists and the extraneous chit-chat of thought. And then an idea or a thought would come to me and I would let it sit there for a while. And I would say to myself, well, maybe that's just trivial. And then if it's still there and it's burning and it's really very important, you would then minister. So you would say something like, friends, I thought this or it can, I consider this or let me read this extract from scripture or a poem or uh, anything. And then there'd be silence after your ministry, which would normally be quite brief. And there would never be chat, but there would be definitely silence after that. And that might prompt other thoughts. They would go, well, that's not relevant to me. I'm just going to let that go. And other friends suddenly think, oh, my goodness, that ties in with something in my heart. And they would meditate on that or contemplate that. And they might even be moved to minister. Now, in an hour of silence, there may be no ministry or there may be three little bits of ministry. They're always very brief. But I think, obviously, in Buddhism, you're, you're, as I understand it, you're emptying yourself, and you're seeking that depth that the abbot talks about. But in Quakerism, you know, the emptying is to be filled again.
1: Well, in this monastery, we have two periods of silent meditation that are an hour long every day. So from 5 to 6 in the morning, and from 7.30 to 8.30 every evening, there's about 70 people sitting together in complete silence every day. In a way, that's the the engine of our spiritual life, is that communal gathering to be together in silence. So it's like a a long Quaker meeting, or maybe an average length Quaker meeting. But it's very powerful. But I would underscore, you're coming there in order to help the mind, the heart to have a perspective on those self-centered habits, in order to let go of them to expand the the vision. So it is a a time where there is a quality of, of liberation, Also, we we do practice meditation in our own huts or our our own rooms. So it's the same process, whether it's communal or individual in in our tradition, our, our way of spiritual practice.
0: Tom, can you explore the issue of silence in your work? rather than in terms of belief and religious practice. I'm thinking about your role as an author on a disability, a disability rights activist. Does silence play a role? Can you make people take on board some of the issues you raise through the use of silence?
2: I'm not sure. I think that, obviously, I write books like the Abbot, but I would spend a lot of time reading everything there was to read about a subject, let us say or looking at the evidence, the data that I've gathered. And there would be a process of silence because I've got to digest that. I've got to make sense of it. I've got to put it in order. I could do that with a a paper and pencil or a computer, but there's a lot of silence involved. If you talk to me, you distract me. Let's be quiet. Let's focus. Let's concentrate on this. So I think that most definitely Silence is involved. Similarly, when one's teaching, I think if you give a whole lecture from start to finish without any break, that's overwhelming to people. And so often in a lecture, I'll stop and I'll say, "Okay, have a think about this for the next few minutes. Jot down a few ideas. Turn to your neighbour, compare those ideas." And there is silence. Silence falls. People think, "Oh, what do I think? You know, what's my list? What's my you know, whatever." Quite often in an introductory sociology lecture, I would say, right, for the next few minutes, draw a picture of society. And it's back of an envelope, doesn't have to be good art. And then there's silence and people go, what the hell did he mean? And they all come up with something. And, yeah, it might be a pyramid or it might be a group of unconnected individuals or it might be men and women in two different boxes or whatever it might be, or a ladder. They'll come up with a drawing and then you say, OK, you were just doing sociology." and it's the silence, the thinking about what did he mean, what would I do, how can I respond. But certainly in in any intellectual activity, silence is necessary. Otherwise, I think you just reproduce what's happened already. If you're ready to digest it and think about it and come up with something new, you need to to have that silent contemplation.
1: Also, there's a Buddhist teacher called Gregory Kramer, who's developed a method called Insight Dialogues, using more of a a Theravada format, a classical Japanese one, where you saw two people sit down together and have a, a dialogue, but similarly not coming from a place of reactivity or just telling your stories or chit-chat, but similarly drawing upon what is the truth for you in this moment. The two of you just sit there in complete silence and look at each other without uttering a word, you're here we are, or it can be that a whole exchange, a living exchange arises from that.
0: So you have silence as a pedagogical tool, if you like, silence as a form of worship. Can silence also be an act of defiance?
2: Yes, in a sense that Quakers consider let your life speak. So, you know, Quakers have chained themselves to their planes to stop refugees or migrants being taken back to their place of origin. I think Quakers are quiet people. I don't think Quakers chatter on the job, as it were. But I think that certainly a defiance, nonviolent direct action practiced by Quakers and Buddhists and, and black rights activists has that. I want to say one more thing, that Quakers have silence as a business method. So Quakers don't have an abbot, don't have an archbishop, don't have a leader in that sense. And so a Quaker meeting for business, there would be an agenda and silence will be part of it. Shall we sell the meeting house? You wouldn't just go, yes, no, why not? That would be bad. You know, lots of different perspectives. You'd sit with it in silence and you contemplate that. And then when you speak, you're not looking for even a consensus, certainly not a vote. You're looking for the truth to emerge in the silent interaction of people. So, yes, I think silence has direct applications in all sorts of areas of life.
1: It's very interesting that uh, you say that, Tom, because we've actually copied... Some of the quaker methods for our our own meetings i think there was a book called voteless decisions in the society of friends that was a major crib sheet for us in terms of some of our own community meetings and similarly our our business meetings often pretty much always begin with a a period of silence again to compose the mind to arrive in the room to bring your attention to the to the present but going back to ed's original question a good example i feel about silence being an act of defiance um, Uh, I recently made the acquaintance of uh, Dr. Miriam Kalachi who is at Oxford University. She's a Quaker. She's the first Quaker chaplain of an Oxford college. She's the chaplain at St. Hilda's College and uh, we got to know each other because she wanted to have a Buddha image for this interfaith chapel, the sanctuary they were establishing. And uh, I had come across her name before because she became quite well known for publishing a completely blank paper on Armenian history. And silence is one of the major topics of, of her interest in her teaching, and that expressing the fact that the Armenian people were being silenced uh, and not able to, to speak up. Then she published a, an academic paper, uh, I think it had her name at the top, <laughs> but the, the paper itself was blank. So it was a, a silent expression, but it was a very meaningful act of a silence with presence, that carried meaning in a very effective way, probably more effective and got more attention than if there had been the usual number of words in an academic paper.
2: I'm sure you're right, and thank you for your kind words. I'm so glad that it's been useful to you, Albert. I'm sure in Buddhism and in that protest, there is an abnegation of self. It's not about the ego. It's not about being a heroic protester. Mm-hmm. It's about silent bodies testifying to the wrongness or the rightness of whatever the cause might be. And I think that is very important. It's not about us. It's about the the underlying truth that we're expressing. Oh, yeah,
1: I would agree completely when uh, people ask about, well, Buddhists are supposed to be non-violent or we're supposed to be peaceful and non-contentious. And I think what happens a lot in the West, but uh, it's probably worldwide, is that if I don't agree with your opinions, then you think, well, you hate me or you're opposed to me because you don't agree with my opinions. But within within the Buddhist understanding of things, it's quite possible and, and advisable or uh, worthy of support to say, no, I love you completely, but I'm not going to get out of your way. Yeah, I love you and I, I have no hatred or aversion towards you, but I, I don't agree with your policies or I don't agree with your opinions and I'm not going to get out of your pathway. So teasing those things apart, just because you don't agree with someone's opinions doesn't mean to say that you hate them or it's about your personal point of view. I think, as you say, it's about you letting go of of self-view. There's an abnegation, self-abnegation. Yeah, It's not about me, but it's that this principle is worthy of being given strength. And so let that be given its voice, let that be, be said. And it just happens to be me that's doing the talking or me who's standing in the street. And so that refusal to hate... And the refusal to contend, even as you're standing in the way, can be a far more powerful expression than getting angry and contentious. I think you
2: referred to Francis of Assisi at the beginning, Ed, um, and there's a famous Franciscan saying attributed to him. I think it's along the lines of preach the truth at all times, if necessary, use words.
0: And so this edition of Naked Reflections falls into silence. Thanks to my guests, Tom Shakespeare and Arjen Amaro. And as we said in our dialogue, we can learn and pray in silence. If you enjoyed this podcast, why not look at our back catalogue of discussions? It's quite a resource. You may also want to check out other podcasts from the Wolf Institute or from our friends at the Naked Scientists. I'll be back next week with more bracing discussion and some new guests. But for now, I can't resist ending with a quote from Wittgenstein. What can be said at all can be said clearly. And whereof one cannot
1: speak, thereof one must be silent.